Someone who keeps saying the same thing over and over again is said to be like a broken record. Well, say what you want about people who often repeat themselves, but they rarely fail to get their point across. This week on In Storied, we begin to look at ways in which the story of the Bible repeats itself and what that means with regards to both human nature and God's own nature. Plus, we'll look at how not to name your kids. I'm looking at you, Adam and Eve. Welcome to In Storied. I'm Corey Smith. Last year, 2023, marked the first time since 1987 that vinyl records outsold CDs. Vinyls are in their 17th consecutive year of growth and still going strong. I think given this digital age we're in, that's just amazing. Now, streaming is still far and away the most popular way for people to get their music, but as far as physical media goes, vinyl is once again king of the hill. And it's not just the boomer generation looking for nostalgia either. It's mostly Gen Xers and millennials who are driving those sales. And it's several different things. For one, it's actually feeling like you own something, own a piece of music, which is, of course, the trade-off involved with subscription-based streaming services. Another part is just the tangible nature of the thing. With a vinyl record, you have it in hand, and a lot of people like the album artwork and the liner notes, and they're willing to pay for that whole experience. Now, here's something interesting. Around 50% of vinyl buyers today say they don't actually even own a record player. So it's the collectible nature of vinyl records too. But for those who do own a record player and buy these albums and actually play them, they get this warm, raw kind of sound that's different from all other mediums. And a lot of people actually prefer the way vinyl sounds. But there's another kind of sound you can get with vinyl records that you can't get with digital media. And that's the sound of a record skipping or repeating. It happens when either from dust or damage to the record or even something wrong with the needle or the player itself, you get to hear a few seconds of your favorite song over and over again in an endless loop. This is what parts of the Old Testament are like after Genesis chapter 3. The song starts off well enough with the first two chapters of Genesis. It starts off great, in fact. But after the third chapter, we're going to start noticing these repetitions. And they're very intentional. It's a literary strategy that the biblical writers are using to bring our minds right back to Genesis chapter 3. It's patterns of words and ideas, and sometimes they're easy to pick up on, and other times they're kind of subtle. But they're definitely there. And after you spend some time reading and rereading these stories with an eye towards these kinds of cues, you'll be surprised at just how many there are. And it helps bring this whole story of God and humanity that is the Bible together into sharper focus. So Genesis chapter 4 starts off with Adam and Eve having two sons. The firstborn son named Cain, we looked at briefly last week, how his name means gotten or acquired and how that's relevant to what's going on with Adam and Eve after the curse. The second son's name is Abel. 
Now, the meaning of Abel's name is kind of unfortunate, especially when you think about what happens to him. Now, the meaning of Cain's name is offered up within the story itself, but you have to do a little digging to learn what Abel's name means. Abel, or Hevel, means breath or vapor. You see it several times in the Psalms, and you see it a lot in Ecclesiastes. A great example from Psalms is Psalm 144, where it says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Sadly, this hits really close to home for Abel because he doesn't make it very far into the story. In Ecclesiastes, Abel is the most common word in the book. It's the word that usually gets translated as vanity or meaningless, the writer's go-to way of describing life lived under the sun. It's all just futile, he says, because no matter what you do or who you are, all meet the same fate. All are subject to death in the end. And poor Abel, this is so true for him because all he does in this story is his job and make meaningful sacrifices to God. And he doesn't die in spite of that, he dies because of it. His older brother's own jealousy leads Cain to take Abel's life. Getting into the story, we see that these brothers have different jobs. Abel, it says, is the keeper of sheep, a shepherd. And Cain is a worker of the ground, so he's a farmer. As far as social standing goes, in the ancient Near Eastern way of looking at things, Cain is the favored son. He's the firstborn, and while birth order tends not to carry as much weight anymore in the modern Western world, in the place and time that the Bible comes to us out of, being firstborn is it's a very big deal, particularly a firstborn male, because this is the one who will receive twice as much inheritance as his younger siblings, and he will be the one to get his father's estate and be responsible for managing the family business. Cain is also the farmer and Abel the shepherd. These are two professions that, again, in the modern Western world, you may not even know anyone who does these kinds of things for a living. The Industrial Revolution pushed farming and agriculture outside of the sphere of everyday life for most people, and now the vast majority of us are kept fed through grocery stores and restaurants. When you live in urban metropolitan areas, you might have to drive quite a ways to even see farmland. But farming in the ancient Near East takes place near cities and villages instead of far away. It's about easy access to crops for planting and harvest and to the good water sources that cities and villages are built around anyway. Shepherding now, on the other hand, most of that activity happens away from home, with shepherds leading their flocks to pasture out in the open areas or mountainsides away from where people tend to be. So in addition to being the firstborn, Cain has the more civilized job, and Abel spends most of his days away from civilization. In these ancient agrarian societies, it's very typical for the older sons to be more involved in the farming and the youngest son to be the shepherd. When you think about David's story, he's the youngest of eight sons. And what is he doing when Samuel stops by to see which of Jesse's sons will be the next king of Israel? Oh, he's out with the sheep. He's the youngest son. That's customarily the youngest son's job to be the shepherd. So while Samuel was busy 
being so impressed with Jesse's firstborn son, who's apparently this tall, strapping guy, God reminds Samuel that he's not impressed by the things humans are typically impressed by. And that's why these two basic details of Cain and Abel's birth order and their jobs are important to know ahead of the offerings that they make. We need to see that a guy like Cain would be considered more important by human standards than a guy like Abel. But like David, Abel has God's favor, not because of these external goods that matter to humans, but because of the internal goods that matter to God. So the story tells us Cain brings God an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brings an offering from the flock. Specifically, it says Abel's offering is of the firstborn of his flock. He's honoring God by giving him the first and best of what he has. And that's what matters here. I've heard it said before that Abel's offering is more acceptable to God because it's an animal sacrifice, and Cain's bringing vegetables or fruit when animal sacrifices are the better, more desirable sacrifice. But that's not it. Abel's bringing an animal sacrifice because he's a shepherd, and Cain's bringing the fruit of the ground because he's a farmer. Each is giving based on the job that he has and what kind of thing that job produces. So that's not what's at issue. The issue is that while the narrator tells us Abel is giving his first and best, There's no such thing said about what Cain gives. So, because Abel freely offers his best to God, it says God has regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, God has no regard. And Cain gets mad about it. But God approaches Cain and says, Cain, why are you mad? If you do well, will you not also be accepted? In other words, God's acceptance and blessing are not a zero-sum game. This isn't a situation where there had to be a winner and a loser. Jealousy does not need to factor into this because Cain has the same choice before him as Abel does. And God's words to Cain assume that Cain understands this. If you do well, your offering will also be accepted, just like your brother's. And then God offers Cain some fatherly wisdom. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is one of those places where the record starts to skip and we're hearing part of the song on repeat. Because what God says here has Genesis chapter 3 written all over it. And so let's, let's break it down. First part is, if you do not do well, or literally, if you don't do or choose the good. It's as if Cain is now standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as his parents did before him. God is offering him wisdom and encouragement. Choose the good and not the bad. So, Cain can follow God's wisdom, or he can pursue wisdom on his own. If, Cain, you do not choose the good, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. 
Sin is described here in terms like an animal, a predator, waiting in ambush to pounce on Cain the moment he passes through the door. Sin is a beast, like the beast that led Adam and Eve astray. The last part is, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's almost verbatim, the language of the curse from the previous chapter. In chapter 3, this language characterizes the power struggle between the man and the woman on the other side of the curse. Now, as one who is also subject to the curse, Cain's power struggle is between the beast that is sin and himself. And Cain must choose. He can heed God's warning, follow God's wisdom, and trust God at his word, that if Cain will just choose the good and trust God with the best of what he has to offer without withholding from God the very thing that God has blessed him with, it will go well for Cain. He, too, can be accepted and blessed. But like his parents, he also has the option of trying to secure blessings for himself, to be wise on his own. He can do that, or he can lean on God's wisdom in order to be fruitful and have dominion. Sin is a beast. Cain should have dominion over it. But his parents listened to a beast, the serpent, and it was the beginning of their undoing. The writer very much wants you to see Cain as now being in the same situation as Adam and Eve and to emphasize the choice that lay before him. Now, there is no serpent directly mentioned in chapter 4, and the sin that is crouching at the door waiting to pounce on Cain isn't given a voice. But there must be a voice directing Cain's thoughts and his heart towards what comes next. And maybe it's a mixture of his own inner voice and an outside influence. But judging by Cain's decision, the message must have had something to do with God not being trustworthy and Cain having to find a way to secure blessings on his own. And that those blessings will never come as long as Abel is there blocking his path. So Cain falls to the struggle. He doesn't rule over the beast. He becomes ruled by it instead. And if you become ruled by the beast, you become the beast. And Cain becomes a predator. He lures his prey, his own brother, out into the field to strike him down and kill him. The life that God gave, Cain takes and spills it out onto the ground. And Cain must answer to God for it. So, in a courtroom-type proceeding similar to that of Genesis 3, God begins by asking a question. In Genesis 3, God asks the man, where are you? In Genesis 4, God asks Cain, where is your brother? And Cain lies, saying, I don't know. Am I supposed to be his keeper? God says, what have you done? It's the same words he says to Adam and Eve. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood of Abel testifies against Cain, even though Cain does not confess. 
And God now pronounces a curse on Cain. He says, Cursed are you from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Remember from last week that humans have a relationship with the ground, with creation. And that in chapter 3, that relationship becomes strained as a result of the curse. And the ground will only yield its fruit after putting up a fight, thorns and thistles. This picture in chapter 4 of the ground opening its mouth only to receive innocent blood from the hand of Cain is like the ultimate violation of this relationship, not only between Cain and Abel, but also Cain and the ground. Cain is a farmer. The ground is supposed to open its mouth and receive good things from Cain so that the ground can do what it was created to do, yield fruit. So now for Cain, the consequences go beyond thorns and thistles. God says, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Cain loses his vocation as a result of this. He is a farmer who cannot work the ground in order to grow anything. So now he isn't a farmer, but he's a wanderer. Nowhere can he go where the ground will yield him anything. Cain complains to God that his punishment is more than he can bear. Now, he could be saying one of two things, or both, because the word here for punishment, avon, can mean punishment for doing something wrong, or it can mean just the realized guilt of doing something wrong. The ESV translation of the Bible has a footnote to this effect. If he means his guilt is more than he can bear, then that would be about the depth of his grief over what he's done, which would be appropriate. But you don't get that impression from what he says next. He doesn't really say anything about the loss of his brother. But he does talk about the separation he now has from both the ground and God himself. So like Adam did after eating the fruit, Cain comes across as blaming God for what is happening. He says, Now he is a fugitive and a wanderer, and that whoever finds him will kill him. And maybe he's not wrong to think that. In the book of Numbers, chapter 35, it says, Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So the idea here is that murder is not only an injustice that occurs between the murderer and the victim and the victim's family and loved ones. Bloodshed pollutes the land itself. I think this part of the book of Numbers is very much drawing on the story of Cain and Abel. And if bloodshed pollutes the land, then the murder is not only a crime that affects the parties immediately involved. It affects the entire community. And the entire community must address it in order to atone for the polluting of the land through bloodshed. And by land, we're talking the literal earth here. And only the blood of the guilty can atone for the blood of the innocent. The book of Numbers prescribes that someone from the victim's family, who will take on a role called the avenger of blood, must be the one to make atonement by finding and killing the murderer. It's capital punishment 
carried out by the one designated as the Avenger of Blood. And this is probably the closest male kin of the one who was slain. This is what's on Cain's mind. He's polluted the land through bloodshed, and his death is the only way to atone. But God responds strongly to this, saying, Not so. And that anyone who would kill Cain for this crime opens themselves up to God's retribution seven times over. And look at what God does here. This is so interesting to me. And it just tells us so much about God. He puts a mark on Cain. The mark is there that anyone who would come across Cain would somehow know of this promise that God made to Cain and not to kill him. No description is given of what the mark is, but presumably it's outwardly visible and it must mark Cain as belonging to God in some way. The Hebrew word for mark here, and you'll love this, is oath. It sounds pretty much the same as our English word oath. And in other places where it's used in the Old Testament, it's sometimes translated like a token of covenant, like the rainbow of Genesis chapter 9. The rainbow is a token symbol of God's covenant, never again to flood the earth. It's the oath God makes. I wonder if that's just a coincidence or if we truly get the English word oath from the Hebrew word that sounds and means very close to the same thing. I can't be sure, but I think it's cool to think about. The mark on Cain is the oath, God's pledge that what he has said about Cain's life being safe from vengeance is fully trustworthy. The mark is the physical manifestation, the seal of that commitment, just like the rainbow after the flood. The same word oath is also used to describe the functional role of circumcision in the covenant God makes later with Abraham. It's, it's a sign of the promise. And I can't remember if I've said it already or not in anything on this podcast so far, but even if I have, it bears repeating. And that is how incredible God's mercy is. I've heard many times that the God of the Old Testament is severe in his judgment and that Jesus comes in the New Testament and he's full of grace and forgiveness. And there are times in the Old Testament where we see God in his judgment. And yes, it's a scary picture. But consider Cain. By God's own laws that he will eventually hand down to Moses, Cain is a murderer, and murderers are subject to capital punishment. Cain has polluted the land with the innocent blood of his own brother. You can't get much worse than that. And yet, God makes a covenant with Cain to preserve his life from the avenger of blood. He won't allow him to be killed. And God himself will not kill Cain for this. So if God will not kill Cain, and he won't allow anyone else to kill Cain, how will there be atonement for the land? And how can it be cleansed from bloodshed? And the story really doesn't answer that question as of yet. This unresolved, unatoned-for problem is going to linger for a time. God is full of grace and mercy. Look at what we've seen so far in just the last two chapters we've read in Genesis. Even when capital punishment is called for, he doesn't kill Adam, Eve, Cain, or even the serpent. Do they get off the hook completely? No, there are consequences. 
But God is committed to life even when humans choose death for themselves. This is the portrait of God in the Bible from beginning to end. Even in the face of his uncompromising justice, his mercy and his love for us are what drives him and defines him. Which is a very good thing, because it turns out we need a lot of both love and mercy. Next week, we follow Cain as he journeys farther east, farther away from Eden, to a land called Wandering, the land of Node. Now that he's no longer a farmer, what will he find for his hands to do? We hope you're enjoying and storied. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. We'll see you next week.